large audiences, you know, thousands of people, but I've never been as scared as I am today to talk <laughs> in front of <laughs> Not because it's uh, not people uh, from, from my field, uh, because that's not, uh, that's not an issue, but because I feel somehow that uh, uh, my, my perspective uh, on, on the issues is uh, possibly different than, than yours, and uh, you know, your reaction to what I will say is, to me, right now, totally unpredictable. <laughs> now, the, the exploration of, uh, of a universe is something that has fascinated people since uh, very early on. The sky that uh, the ancient Greeks were looking at was more magnificent than the one we see with our eyes just because of the pollution. But certainly with the tools that have been developed in the past few years, we do get uh, a picture of what's out there in the sky that's uh, uh, really phenomenal. What's more phenomenal perhaps is uh, not just what we see, but it's really what we don't see. And that will be one of the themes of my presentation. You know, How do we handle the unknown? How do we handle the, the invisible in, in science? And uh, to connect these uh, with this specific picture, I will just spend a few seconds discussing a phenomenon that's very well known uh, in physics and possibly is known to many of you because it's part of the standard uh, scientific culture of anyone who reads uh, Scientific American or Nature or the New York Times. And that is gravitational lensing. It's a phenomenon that very similarly to you know, what happens as light goes through a lens, through some material, when light goes through a gravitational field, it gets bent. That's been known for over a century. Well, almost a century. So light coming from, do, is there a pointer that I can uh, use? I have a oh, yeah, this is a laser. Yeah. So as light coming from a very, very distant galaxy, coming towards us on Earth, crosses a cluster of galaxies, this cluster of galaxies acts like a lens and it will bend light. So th exactly the same image will come through uh, with perhaps a shape that's just the achromaticity deformation of, the, of a point-like image. So as we look in the sky, similar places like the, the one of the previous uh, slide similar clusters of galaxies, we see images like these. You see th there are these uh, highly deformed bent shapes all over here, and uh, you can prove that the shape here and the shape there correspond to exactly the same object. It's just different images of the same galaxy whose light uh, just went through these uh, uh, very large uh, cluster of galaxies. Now, what is interesting about that is that nevertheless, if you just account for all of the mass that you see here and you calculate what the deformation would be, it's like you know, doing uh, your work of calculating how light would be reflected by, by a given uh, pair of glasses, you realize that there is much more mass, there has to be much more mass in this cluster of galaxies than you can possibly see. So what's really interesting about this picture is not what we see, all of these galaxies, but is what we don't see, and that's the, what we call dark matter. And the same phenomenon you see it all over. It's all over the place. There are many, many independent ways in which we can actually assess the fact that there is matter out there that we don't understand. That's not part of a classical uh, family of particles uh, that, we, that we know. 
So this is an unexpected result on the composition of the universe that what we know, what we control, namely protons, electrons, photons, is only like about 4%. There is another 23%, so like, you know, six times more. That's what we call dark matter that manifests itself in the way I just uh, highlighted. And then there is something that's even weirder that we call dark energy and that's responsible for the uh, universe itself accelerating. That's even less uh, concrete somehow than dark matter because dark matter, we do believe that it is matter like protons, simply it's not protons while dark energy, we really don't know what, what that is. So proving the existence of the invisible or the unexpected is a common theme in science. It's something that, uh, you know, over and over I could have given you many other examples. And establishing what the nature of the invisible and the nature of the unknown is indeed what we do as a, as a, as a job. And as we do that, uh, we pose ourselves, we keep posing ourselves the questions that uh, the ancient philosophers have been asking themselves uh, since thousands of years. Are there fundamental building blocks of matter? Is it all continuous or can we, by chopping, continuously get down to something which is basic? And if there is building blocks, uh, what are they? Are they the quarks? Are they the electrons? Is there more? How do they interact? W what are the rules of the game? How do we put them together? And how their interactions and themselves determine altogether the properties of, of the universe. So these are the questions that, that we ask. So it's questions about things that we know nothing about, right? So by, by definition, somehow, we are exploring. As a result of this exploration over the past, uh, say, 50 years, perhaps, we put together this nice table that hopefully you've seen many, many times, which is uh, the table of the fundamental components of the universe of matter. Quarks that make up the protons, make up the nucleus, etc. and leptons. And there are three families of these, the electron, the neutrino, the quarks that compose the proton, and this family is repeated three times with heavier objects that, that have exactly the same properties, they interact in exactly the same way, and the only difference is that they are heavier for reasons that are yet unknown. So even though this picture allows us to describe everything we see around, with the exception of uh, dark matter and a couple of other uh, things that will be listed here, there are some outstanding questions. What's the origin of mass? We, we know what mass is because we measure it, it's there, but where does it come from? Why should there be particles that have a mass and particles that don't? And we believe that we do have an answer to this because we do have a very compelling model for where the mass comes from, uh, and that is uh, within the standard model, these extra particles that's not been observed as yet, but whose properties we know very well because we can anticipate and the particle we'll be looking for with the next generation of experiments. What's the origin of dark matter, where it comes from? Again, we do have several models, several possible ways in which this particle manifests itself, possibly in the laboratory. What's the origin of a matter-antimatter asymmetry that we observe in the universe? We do see seeds, we do have seeds for matter-antimatter asymmetries in our standard picture of uh, interactions, but if we do the calculation, we see that that's not enough. This asymmetry is not enough to explain the amount of matter that there is in the universe relative to antimatter. Is the proton absolutely stable? That's, of course, something that, you know, for the very long-term fu future of, uh, of the universe, as will be discussed uh, tomorrow, has some relevance. Is the proton that we are made of, you know, going to last forever or is it going to decay? Timescales, of course, are 
very long, but from the fundamental philosophical issue, it's very important. Are there more fundamental interactions beyond those that we know? Are there extra dimensions or symmetries in space-time? Do we really live in three plus one dimensions, or is there more? Is there any way you know, to, to get through distance places, through wormholes in extra dimensions, or all of these fantastic things that now we, we read only in, uh, in, uh, in the crazy literature, but perhaps one day they will uh, show up. So the next step in addressing these questions is going to start very quickly, very soon. In within a couple of months, this big accelerator, it's a 27-kilometer tunnel underground near Geneva, will start operating at the beginning very slowly, just you know, injecting uh, single particles to make sure that everything is okay, and by next year we'll be running at full steam. This is just a picture of uh, how it looks like underneath. To impress you, I give you a few numbers. Of course, it's not something that I should be doing here. I should do the opposite, but this is what, you know, typically as we go out, we tell people, right? And that's also part of the problems we face. There are 1,200 of these uh, huge magnets, these uh, dipoles that bend the particles. It's protons that we are talking about. Uh, the energy of the particles as they go through the protons is uh, 7,000 GeV. Now, to get a proton, to get a particle to such energy, if you just want to use, uh, you know, what you can buy in the store, it would be enough to buy 5 trillions, 1.5 volt batteries, and given that the size is about one centimeter, that means pretty much you put them in line one after the other between here and the sun. You put one proton on Earth, one on the sun, and they will just get, you know, accelerated towards each other. So it's, you know, on a, on a scale that we can comprehend, that we can understand, but it's much more efficient to do it. Uh, underground in Geneva. Protons <laughs> will be accelerated to a velocity which is near the velocity of light, C is the velocity of light, so to one part in 10 to the 10, 10 to the 9, they will be driving at the speed of light, and they will be grouped together, these protons, in about 3,000 bunches of about 10 to the 11, so 100 billion protons each circulating in opposite directions. The energy stored in the beam is 350 megajoules. That's the energy of a whole uh, set of protons. So that's about 80 kilograms of TNT, which is quite a lot because if it blows up in your car, there is not, not much left of you. But you know, one, you distribute it over 27 kilometers, certainly it's not a big amount of uh, energy and it certainly cannot do any macroscopic damage. It's about the energy of a train going at full, at full speed. So if you lose the beam, it's pretty much like having a train that crashes against, against a wall. So, uh. Now, these uh, dipoles are very powerful objects. They operate at two degree kelvins, so very, very close to the absolute uh, zero. Uh, there is a huge force between themselves. You, when they, they come together, they're like 15 meters long and they go in a circle. So the whole thing, you know, there is a stress because the whole thing would like to, to straighten up. So there is a force of about 15, 1,500 kilograms per square centimeter when they, come, when they come together. So if they break apart, again, you know, that's a big, uh, that's a big uh, hit, right? And you don't want to be there. But when the thing operates, nobody, in fact, is, uh, is around. So it's a magnificent object from the point of view of uh, technology. And I think it's legitimate to wonder whether, you know, such a mixture of power, energy, low temperatures, you name it, can induce any catastrophic events, both at the level of operational accidents. It's a complicated machine. Uh, building a 27-kilometer tunnel, uh, when, it, when it was done several years ago, few people died. But, you know, as you build a tunnel, that 
something that happens. But we're talking about not catastrophic events, we're talking about uh, uh, civil engineering uh, issues that, uh, however careful you are, uh, may affect, uh, may affect uh, people. Of course, what we are really here to discuss about is the creation of new forms of matter or particles that could trigger runaway processes and there at that point we don't know what will happen. Now, just to make sure that you trust me that overall the LHC is not a dangerous machine per se uh, as a macroscopic object. It, there are a few things which are important to, to know because many people actually elaborate also on this, elaborate on the fact that it's operating with huge fields, huge velocities, whatever, so by itself, even in its normal operation, forgetting about black holes and strangelets, it's, it, it's a potential source of uh, disasters. So this is what happens when, uh, when the two protons uh, collide, they come together and just uh, that little blip, and they just go through. Okay, the, it's the, these beams don't get devastated, they don't get destroyed, it's just uh, a little uh, reaction that takes place. And the, the reason is that inside a bunch there is 10 to the 11 protons. The bunch is about one cubic centimeter, in fact it's a bit more than that. So if you do the calculation, you find that the density of these clouds are 10 to the minus 13 grams per cubic centimeter. So these clouds are absolutely empty, right? In order to find a density so small, you have to go about 200 kilometers up above the atmosphere, right? Not on the moon, but I mean, you really have to go. So LHC proton bunches are totally empty. So what really happens when, when they collide is more like this. Inside, you know, there is, they're very, very far away from each other, these protons, 10 to the 13 times more far away than would be inside, uh, inside a glass of water. And therefore, when they cross each other, the bunches, at best, there will be just one pair that hits <coughs> and everything else go away. And the energy that's involved in that single collision is about the energy of a fly, of a mosquito that's flying. So again, there is... Uh, so a particle accelerator, the bottom line, is that it's a highly inefficient way of using all of the power that, that, that you put in. Uh, its sole purpose is to concentrate high energy densities, but in very, very small volumes, so that the actual energy that we're talking about is a minuscule amount by microscopic standards. Now, <coughs> what becomes more, more serious is the risk from, uh, uh, is the, the discussion about risks from produced objects. Uh, so these are particles that, you know, we have never seen before, even though we may be speculating about them as part of the exercise with which I started my, my, my lecture. And these are some examples of the things that we are discussing. Stable microscopic black holes that swallow matter and eat up the Earth. Magnetic monopoles that catalyze proton decay. They take a proton and they turn it into orange juice. Strangelets that convert normal matter into strange matter. It's a form of, and with the release of, it doesn't matter what the strange matter is, what really counts is that there is an immense amount of energy that's being released. So by all means, it's like an explosion. It's not important what's left after, but it's what's happening during, that, that, that is a concern, and then possible phase transitions. Now, how can we exclude, uh, furthermore, the risk of, so we can discuss those specific issues that have been put forward, <coughs> but what about, you know, things that perhaps we never really thought of and that could happen as we start these operations. This is, you know, fr from, a, from a more general point of view, it's not much different than wondering, even though we have some expectations for the LHC, how do we know that in fact with this machine we are going to discover the Higgs or we are going to discover 
uh, dark matter. In other words, something that you don't know what it is because you've never seen it, you don't even know whether it's there. How can you possibly build something that will give you the certainty to, to, to be discovered? Now, the starting point of this is the fact that in normal life, or in an experiment, or by itself in the universe, the universe behaves in a very well-defined uh, way. There are rules like energy conservation, charge conservation, that are known to be valid. Energy conservation is not something that, you know, is not uh, an assumption. It's not something that all of a sudden may not be true any longer. It's not something that as we move from here to the moon will not be valid any longer. It's very related to very, very deep properties of space and time. It's related to the fact, that, for example, that time is uniform, that time flows in a uniform way, that the, the time that if you do an experiment now and you do it uh, tomorrow, the physical laws are going to be the same. And that's what leads to energy conservation. So it's something that has to be, has to be there. And all of the phenomena have to, to follow it, to obey it, which is also what I, what I say here. So that leads to reproducibility and predictivity of the physical phenomena in, in a general sense. This is slightly different than what we have, for example, in biology, because in biology, it's really important more than the law. It, I mean, the laws are important, but what's important is the environment. If you s have something happening here, it's very different than if you take it uh, uh, in, a, in a very hot uh, uh, oven or if you do it uh, on a planet, right? I mean, the, the, the development of a biological object uh, depends very much on, on the environment. So even the particles that we expect to, to discover at the LHC or that we expect to be there, we'll have to follow these rules. And as a result of this, we can make predictions. So predicting the existence of something that's been unseen is something that belongs to our culture. It's something that has been done many, many times in, uh, in the past and that we hope we'll be able to do again at the LHC. I will give you the neutrino as, a, as an example of, uh, of this. There was a process back in the 20s which was the, the decay of helium-6 into lithium and an electron. And people observed that from the decays there was missing energy. So that they were ready, there was energy missing in, in the bookkeeping of the total energy. And people thought that maybe energy violation was, uh, you know, energy was not conserved uh, in, uh, in, uh, in quantum mechanics, in, atom in uh, nuclear physics. Until Pauli proposed that perhaps it was much easier to think that in fact there was another particle not seen that was taking away the energy that was missing. And out of this firm in a couple of years formulated the theory of these neutrinos. And this theory is precisely what was used then to do all of the calculations relative to the first uh, nuclear power plants, the, 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 the first nuclear reactions uh, in, uh, in Chicago, of course the nuclear warheads, as well as the calculations on the evolution of the sun and the stars, calculating and predicting the properties of, of stars. All of this was done well before 1956 when neutrinos were actually discovered. So people did something like build a nuclear bomb or build the first nuclear power plants on the basis of a theory that was relying on the existence of particles that had never been seen, okay? Incidentally, neutrinos not being seen, but occasionally being visible because they have a very, very small cross-section, so from time to time we see them, are our best possible X-ray machine to detect things that otherwise we could never see. There is no way we can actually see the center of the sun because the center of the sun is screened by the outer of the sun. 
all of the light that we see comes from the outside. But neutrinos, just because they interact so weakly, they can actually go through. And so occasionally detecting a neutrino coming from the sun, we actually get to see the center of the sun, which is even more invisible a priori than the neutrino, than the neutrino itself. And that's a way in which, once again, uh, with our understanding of the laws of uh, nature and of neutrinos, the fact that neutrinos have a mass was, was first established by just looking at neutrinos coming from the sun. We can also predict that some particles will not be created because we can say if they <coughs> existed, they would have been created somewhere else, so there is no way that they can be created at, uh, at CERN. Another way that we have to control and to predict what may happen is to look at uh, other places in the universe where high energy physics is being done uh, as we speak. And the best place is, uh, as probably many of you know, cosmic rays, which is again another unexpected element in, uh, in, these, uh, in these studies. This is the beginning of particle physics, in fact. Uh, this uh, Professor Hess, uh, who you know, went on a balloon ride, taking with him an electroscope, realized that there was actually charge. There was charge piling up as he was going up. And uh, at some point, they realized that it was just radiation, charged particles coming from, from the sky, from, from somewhere. This is a picture of what would happen as a cosmic ray comes, comes in. Now the exploration of these cosmic rays, of course, has become uh, a business and enterprise extremely uh, sophisticated. Now there is a, a whole huge area in the Pampas in Argentine where uh, there are many, many detectors collecting the highest possible energy cosmic rays coming from, from the cosmos. And uh, we know very well their properties by now. Their energy spectrum is uh, that goes through you know, 20 or more decades of, uh, of rate as a function of the energy, you see, it goes from very, very small energies all the way up to energies that uh, when you take the cosmic ray and heat a particle in the atmosphere, give rise to the equivalent energy of an LHC collision. So what we are going to do in, in the LHC will happen every time one of the cosmic rays sitting here in the tail of the distribution will hit uh, uh, the Earth. So these are data, these are not speculations, these objects are there. We, we, we measure their energy very well by now. We measure their energy, we, we know how many there are because we measure them. And so we can calculate how many of these interactions there are in the atmosphere. And what we calculate is that during the course of the Earth's lifetime, there have been 10 to the 22 of these collisions above the energy, so more energetic than, than the LHC. And for comparison, the number of collisions that we expect at the LHC during its full expected lifetime is 10 to the 17. So it's 100 times more has happened. You know, the, ex the, the whole LHC experiment has happened already 100,000 times in our upper atmosphere. Now, but of course, cosmic rays don't hit just the Earth, they hit the Sun as well. And the Sun has a radius which is about 100, that's about 100 times the radius of the Earth. So the total exposure is 10,000 times. So that means uh, 10 to the 9, 1 billion times LHC experiments. And in the galaxy, there is 10 to the 11 Sun-like stars. So that means that in the galaxy, so let's not go to Andromeda, let's not go elsewhere, but within the galaxy, the LHC experiment took place already 10 to the 20 times. Now, to give you an idea what 10 to the 20 is, 10 to the 20, I did a quick calculation, is the number of combustion cycles 
of the pistons of all engines of all vehicles throughout history. It means, you know, you turn on the engine, it goes up and down, pam, pam, each piston, right, once. So typically you have four in the car, so I counted for the four of them, and they do it like 3,000 times a minute. And then you count how many cars there are, how many cars there have been. That's about 10 to the 20, okay? So imagine in, in, in the course of the whole civilization how many times pistons went up and down, and that's exactly the number of times that the whole LHC experiment has been repeated uh, within the galaxy. And of course, then you want to multiply by another 10 to the 11, 100 billions, because that's the number of galaxies that we can actually see that are causally connected with, with us. So that means that unless there is some environmental bias, unless the fact that we do the experiment in the lab uh, already at the surface of the Earth, for example, or using head-on collisions as opposed to collisions between something very fast and something that's at rest, like the atmosphere. But whatever will take place at the LHC has already occurred a huge number of times uh, in, uh, in the galaxy. So any particle that produced in cosmic rays and then going through the Earth to get stopped because it has a charge, because it interacts, whatever, would have been trapped, and if it could cause any damage, it would have done it already, because it would have had uh, all of these opportunities to, to do it. The whole galaxy would be gone by now. The, the Earth may have survived just out of sheer luck. The, the solar system may have survived out of sheer luck, but certainly you cannot extend that to all of the other, to all of the other objects in, uh, in the galaxies. And likewise, uh, uh, things like phase transitions, where the na nature of the vacuum changes, all of those things, they have absolutely no environmental uh, connection, and therefore they can take place anywhere one of those cosmic rays hits a particle. So let me tell you something about, uh, about strangelets as a way of introducing to you this uh, element of what I would call psychological judgment in, in the evaluation of, of risks. So we start from uh, this important physical uh, fact, which is Pauli principle. Pauli principle says that if we have a particle like a quark, an up quark, and we try to bring it together with another particle, like a down quark, if these two are not the same, that's an up and that's a down quark, you can actually put them one on top of the other. Okay? So we can actually put objects one on top of the other. Hmm? They, they can. On the other hand, if we try to do the same with exactly the same type of particles, with an up quark, that would be the same if we had an electron and an electron. If we try to overlap, then we can't. We cannot put them <coughs> in the same place. Okay? So what will happen is that, you know, they will sort of squeeze so that we can find place for both. They cannot go together. Now, the other thing that could happen is, however, the following. As we try to, to push, to press the two quarks together, if one of them can transform itself into something else, the up quark becomes a strange quark, then, because of Pauli principle, there is no constraint on the two being, being there. So imagine of these quarks, even though it's an entirely wrong picture, but think of them as being balloons, right, air balloons. So by having to force them in the same place, I'm forced to squeeze them. By squ squeezing them costs energy because I really have to fight against the pressure, right? So if by squeezing them so much, I have to put in all of this energy, and if I had a better way of using this energy, a more energetically uh, favorable way, then nature would go that direction. So if I have a quark that's perhaps heavier 
so that it costs energy to produce, that my upcore can go into the moment that compressing the upcore costs more energy than turn the up quark into this new quark, that would be the strange quark, then nature prefers to do that. And this is exactly what happens in, in a strangelet. So we start from a situation where we do have a nucleus that contains uh, you know, the same number of up, down, and strange uh, quarks, just because I was trying to pack together, I have such a huge pressure that you know, nature prefers to turn my up quarks into strange quarks. So if that's the case, and then I take uh, you know, this strangelet going around uh, uh, the Earth, and the moment it encounters the protons, what it will do, we will just see here, you see this up quark is very close to that one, and therefore it prefers to just turn into a strange quark. When it turns into a strange quark, it has to produce also an electron and the neutrino. The neutrino goes away, the positron and the electron come together, and they annihilate and they give rise to radiation. So that, that's the energy that somehow would then uh, uh, build up. So I'm left with a strangelet that now has one extra object and it will go on and it will just turn uh, everything it finds into, into radiation by, by growing. So that's the mechanism and that's why people are, are scared about that. Now, the one important thing is that uh, strangelets don't exist. So in nature, we don't have these strangelets. Because if stable strangers existed, then, you know, all of the ion that's been sitting around or the gold or uranium that's been sitting around for billions of years would have turned into strangelets. But we don't see any evidence of particles containing strange quarks uh, in nature. So we really would have to artificially make them. And to artificially make them, we have to do them as, you know, a jeweler would put together a jewel using diamonds, one by one. We have to inject these strange quarks very carefully, first of all because they decay very, very quickly, the strange quark itself would decay very quickly, and second because this system is extremely unstable, you know, if I put in too much energy, I just break it apart and then it goes back to being something, something normal. And so far, the only things that people have been able to do in a lab was to get something with only one strange inside. We take like a helium-4, we send in a kaon, which is a, a particle with a strange quark in it, and that leads to the strange quark deposited and sitting inside. But that requires really craftsmanship, right? You really have to go very, very delicate with exact, you know, very, very low energy and to put it there. And once you've done it, it goes away in one billionth of a second. So there isn't really much left. So the problem of creating uh, uh, strangeness in the lab is the following. We take two trucks with cars and the cars are the, the track is the nucleus and the cars are the individual uh, quarks or, or protons and neutrons inside and we collide them and we see what happens, right? So what we would like to happen, of course, is something like this. <laughs> now, so the question is, because you see all the pieces are there, right? The pistons are there, the wheels are there, everything else is there and we have many, many copies of them because we have many, many cars. So let's shoot them and let's see what happens. So the question is, do you think it's more likely to produce a Ferrari out of this by in fact going out and trying to take out the pistons, the pieces of the engines and do it carefully, or by simply increasing the energy of the track? You know, I take the tracks going faster and faster and I, and I shoot them together. Common sense will tell you that it's much better to do it at low energy, to do it piece by piece. The higher is the energy, 
the smaller the probability that you can coherently reorganize all of these scattered pieces into a Ferrari, this probability will become smaller and smaller. Now, this looks like a joke, and of course it is a joke, but th there is one lesson in it, and it's the following. Now, I cannot calculate the probability that if we take two trucks and we shoot them together, a Ferrari will come out. Some physicists will tell you, yeah, that that probability is different from zero because everything that's not strictly forbidden in physics will happen. Quantum mechanics, it's possible that you know, my wallet will go from my pocket to your pocket because I'm standing a bit higher than you. So there is a gain in energy for you especially if that transition <laughs> takes place. But of course, you know, the probability is absolutely minuscule. Now, the question is, say that the future of the Earth depending on this number, on the probability of this transition taking place. Do you think you, in other words, I told you that there is a process such that, you know, if I shoot these two trucks together and I get, the moment I get a Ferrari, God is going to punish me and destroy the Earth. Now, do you think that you would really need to know this number or would you trust the fact that it's never going to happen, that you will get a Ferrari out of these, you know, two trucks traveling at, you know, Concorde-like uh, velocities and hitting each other? Now, even if, you know, you really insist and you want it, and I do this calculation, well, you know, it would be a theoretical calculation, so would you trust it? So which weight would you assign to your own perception, as opposed to the calculation, to your own perception that this process is never going to take place? Just out of common sense, right? And then if it comes to perception, whose perception would, uh, would you trust? You know, if we have to entrust someone to provide this psychological judgment, who should it be, right? Now, the reality is uh, this is what happens as you collide, uh, as you collide the two tracks, right? These are real data from the, the Rick experiment. And uh, you see each of these particles is one of the fragments coming out. And the higher the energy, the more of them there will be. And the faster they will go. So they will really try to, to, to get apart from each other uh, as quickly as they can. And the probability of it becoming stranger becomes smaller and smaller. Now, these probabilities we can calculate. It's not that we cannot. We do calculate in, the case, in this specific case. We can calculate, we can assign a probability that indeed uh, the strangelet uh, will, will emerge out of that. That probability, however, will be an upper limit to, to the probability. Very often, this is all we can do um, if you want to rely on empirical evidence. In other words, one solution would be to really solve uh, the equations of the system, and that is a number, and you will always be skeptical about it because I could well have made a mistake in the calculation. And the other is to rely on empirical evidence. So by relying on empirical evidence, which is the probability that a single quark, for example, strange quark gets produced, uh, we can calculate what is an upper limit to the probability that the strange that will, uh, will emerge. And these are the numbers that typically are being discussed in the literature, the number to which you guys attach uh, risks uh, assessments. Now, if you just rely on empirical evidence, and we go back to the issue of the pistons, right, the 10 to the 20. Now, I claim that just based on empirical evidence, the probability that allowing cars to circulate in UK next year will destroy the Earth, there is, you know, an upper limit to the probability that will happen, which is about 10 to the minus 4. 10 to the minus 4 is easy to get. It's about 1%, which is the number of cars you have in U UK relative to the number of cars in the world and about 100 years, which is the, the amount of years that you know, we've been piling up experimental evidence. So if you refuse to accept, and after all, yeah, 
it's quantum mechanics that everything relies on, right? Because the, the combustion process, electromagnetism combined with quantum mechanics. So we know quantum mechanics in this context to one part in 10 to the 20. But what if there is something more rare than one in 10 to the 20? If you really want to be skeptical and only rely on empirical evidence, you are faced with the fact that you have to accept that next year running cars in this country has a probability of 10 to the minus 4, an upper limit to the probability of 10 to the minus 4 of destroying the planet. To go beyond, you have to play some common sense, some scientific common sense that tells you, wait a second, that's never going to happen. First of all, because the combustion, you know, it's also, you know, wh when I uh, warm the water, to make tea, that's more or less the same chemistry, so I have to add in that as empirical evidence. But you know, when you have the real skeptical who comes and tells you, no, I really want you to look at precisely that object, you know, the concept of something that's never been done before, you don't want to repeat it. What do we mean by never been done before? Is turning on the engine of your car the same as making tea or not? Because if it's the same, it's fine. If it's not, then, uh, you know, we have a problem here. So that's when scientific common sense comes in and it provides an additional, although theoretical, safety factor, which whether you quantify or not, represents the oddity of scenarios where such upper limits may turn into actual probabilities. So the whole point is, I do a calculation of an upper limit, it's based on empirical evidence. And the real question is, does that upper limit, is there a situation in which that upper limit is actually a probability? In other words, it means that if you do that thing that many times inverse, it will happen. So in ruling out the scenarios where those upper limits become real probabilities is where the scientific common sense comes in. So who's entrusted to validate such scientific common sense? The man on the street takes it on himself to do it in the case of cars and will drive to the football game next Sunday, even though it's not socially useful. So you can argue that it's socially useful to have cars because of the buses, eh? but it's not socially useful to go to a football game. So we could decide that to limit this, uh, this risk, uh, we just only use cars to take people to the hospital and, uh, and perhaps uh, to go to work. So. You know, I'm not a professional in the things that you do, so I think that you will be laughing at this. But from my perspective, and looking at, you know, what's been, I cannot say what's been done to me, but, you know, what has happened to our field in the past couple of years with all of this uh, scrutiny and reading all of the things that have been written about it, my perspective, the way I look at these things is very close to, you know, these, uh, these issues. And I hope to transfer to you somehow this frustration that, uh, that uh, I, I have. Now, let me give you, you know, as a test case, what we did uh, uh, for the LHC. First of all, a few words on uh, the line of control at CERN. People say, you know, scientists shouldn't be allowed, entitled to, you know, put the humanity at risk, etc. Just to make sure that it's not scientists here who take any initiative, <coughs> this is what happens at CERN. Now, the stakeholders are the governments of the 20 member states. They own the place. Each of them, each member state is represented in council by two delegates, and there is only one vote. The two delegates, one is a scientist who gives scientific advice, and the other is a political figure. In some cases, it's, it's the research of minister. For Portugal, for example, it's been, and I believe it still is, the, 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 the minister of research. In other cases, it's the ambassador to the UN. Uh, either to, to, to the mission in the UN or to some of the other international organizations. 
or to the IAEA, for instance. There is one vote, so the scientist doesn't vote, of course, it's the, the, the ambassador who votes. Now, the establishment of a scientific program, the CERN scientists, together with the physicists from all over the world, decide what it is that they would like to do. They prepare a plan, and the plan gets endorsement, occasionally, by our boss, the CEO, the general, director general of CERN, who's appointed by council. He doesn't have the authority of doing anything. He just says, okay, I believe that these people have a good plan, brings it to council and asks council to finance the plan. And the council, first thing it does is seeks the opinion of the scientific policy committee, which is a body independent of CERN. It's appointed by council. The there are physicists, of course. You don't ask, uh, you know, a, a pharmacist to, to do this. It's physicists, but they are not CERN physicists. And in parallel, all of the safety environmental impact reviews are carried out by the host states. The Atomic Energy Commission, for example, of France, is in charge of making sure that all operations on site follow all of their protocols and all of their standards. So there is absolutely no way that we can do things that we wouldn't be doing. Now, the bottom line, the 20 national governments have total control over what gets done. And let me stress one more point. Most of these countries, including perhaps the one we're held in this conference, are just, you know, desperately waiting for the good opportunity to shut down the place. So this is not like Roche trying to promote, you know, a new medicine and trying to, you know, exploit uh, poor African kids uh, for the testing of the medicine. Here, there is no return. There is nobody who's fighting for this to survive or to continue. We have to fight ourselves, the physicists, but it's not us who have a control, right? So that by itself should already give a sense of, you know, great uh, uh, con, uh, control. In other words, all of the opportunities to, to reduce this physics, uh, this activity, this research are, are there. Now, the process that led to our safety assessment is, uh, is this one. There was an internal study group appointed by physicists of CERN who worked for about a year in consultation with experts. Who else? Again, you know, we wouldn't go to the pharmacist. We talked with, you know, the expert in cosmic ray physics, in nuclear physics, in, uh, in you name it. We put together documents, a very technical one, as well as, a, as an overview. They've been given to council, and said, council decides what to do. Do you want to run the place, or do you want to stop it? Council put it in the hands of the scientific policy committee that appointed a sub-panel of five members with uh, diversified expertise, including a Nobel Prize physics winner, and they endorsed our conclusions, which is that there is no basis for, for concern uh, whatsoever. And all of the documents are available. So that's the, the process. Now, how much time do I have? Um, I've been speaking for 40 minutes. Uh, yeah, if we, want, if we don't want questions, we can go on for another five minutes. OK, so well, 42. So five, that gives me still three minutes, right? Let's do the numbers right. <laughs> so I'll be going fast on, on these. I just wanted to show you a bit, you know, like the issue of a microscopic black holes, because again, that's one of the major scarce. This is how we'd be making a black hole at, at CERN. What's important is that we couldn't be making them at the LHC if the universe is as we know it. That's point number one. If we want to make it, we have to live in these universes where there are n extra dimensions uh, and the space-time is all curled up. So we're talking about already quite bizarre uh, objects. And certainly in the context of these theories, they would decay immediately. <coughs> uh, as you 
probably know, it's been raised the issue that uh, when we produce them at CERN, we produce them at rest, while cosmic rays that be traveling, they'll be going through, and therefore the argument of the cosmic ray goes away. Now, the approach that we followed was uh, the following. To accept the consequence of all of the assumptions that are theoretically disfavored, but that would make the black hole threat a serious one. In other words, we didn't try to fight out as to whether they do decay or they do stop uh, or all of these things. We said, okay, fine, you want us to have a black holes as dangerous as possible. Namely, they are stable, they don't decay, and they grow, in s they, and, they, and we cannot use the cosmic ray, the early cosmic ray argument. So we accepted this and we explored the consequences of such worst case scenarios. Now, I have to stress that, you know, again, this is a matter of psychology, it's a matter of uh, perception, but the working hypothesis that we accepted to, to use in our analysis by no means be belong to the category of established possible risks. So we're not talking about the collapse of an experimental cavern, the loss of beams or everything else. This is something that no one in risk assessment does what we actually did. You know, when you look for, for the risk assessment of a nuclear plant, uh, you consider perhaps that you have a mentally deranged operator who all of a sudden starts operating things, and you have procedures to make sure that that doesn't happen, or an earthquake, or a terrorist attack. <coughs> things that they may have a very, very small probability, but you know that that probability is different from zero, and you consider them. The combined risk triggers that we are considered, they have a probability, a starting probability of zero because things are not supposed to operate that way. Nature is not supposed to behave like that. So we're working under the assumption that nature works in a way different than the one uh, we, you know, we, can, we can observe. And under these con starting conditions, we did our analysis and verified that uh, the black hole either wouldn't grow fast enough or, or it simply doesn't exist. So this is just an example to show, you know, ways of making your assumption uh, more or less uh, um, conservative. You know, the black hole you should look at, think of as being this little hole and whether, you know, you're made of water or sand or pebbles, of course, the pace at which, you know, you would be going through the event horizon is different, right? And the earth is made of pebbles. So even if you had this, little tiny black hole, there is no way you can squeeze in uh, stones because they are too big, they crash on each other, so you cannot get it in, and that slows down. It doesn't matter, we worked under the assumption that you know, the Earth is made of water, which just you know, goes down uh, the drain as fast as possible. So we worked making all of these very conservative assumptions, and uh, the bottom line is that uh, either you know, they grow so slowly that it would take 100 billion, billion years, so 10 to the 11 years for them to just grow to any reasonable size uh, within the Earth. Or if they grow faster, they would have already been shown up because they would be destroying neutron stars and white dwarfs that we see in the sky. Very specific, you know, we point at the white dwarf, we see it there, we know how long it's been there because we know the age of these objects very well. We know how many black holes will have been produced on that white dwarf because of the impact of cosmic rays and the probability that still sitting there, that specific one, you know, like Sirius B, the companion of the Sirius, you know, the probability that that one is still sitting there is, you know, less than 10 to the minus 40. 10 to the minus 40 means it's supposed to be hit by 100 black holes. So the probability, and each one of them would destroy. The probability that you expect 100 to happen and zero happens is e to the minus 100, which is 10 to the minus 43. That's for a single one, and we have many of them. So you just 
take products of 10 to the minus 40s, and these are the probabilities we are talking about. If you really want numbers, we are talking about numbers of those sites. Risk mitigation, it's something that's been discussed. Uh, let me be very frank. These, we are talking about things that if they happen, there is no return, so there is no mitigation here. And anybody who proposes, who has proposed that I've seen mitigation in these issues is really exposing, you know, irresponsible behavior, misunderstanding, and occasionally uh, I have uh, documents exposing lack of integrity of those who put it forward. Uh, you know, gradual increase of beams, let's start, you know, at low energy and let's ramp up, go up. You know, this is like, uh, preventing AIDS by, you know, having sex slowly with somebody who may have it, right? <laughs> Either you get it or you don't, I mean, but if you get it, once you get it, it's too late. So that, that's not a responsible approach to a, a problem like, uh, like this. Uh, offsetting the, the beam uh, energies, you know, you take one big energy, the other is more, so the proton goes away. Again, it's absolutely irrelevant because uh, you can actually, you actually have the quarks inside, so you are always going to produce things at rest, and if you put it on the moon, well, you know, if the moon blows up, we are going to suffer as well. It's not just a matter of blowing up only, only the Earth. So the bottom line is that you cannot mitigate and the consequence is contained. We are not talking about, you know, bringing in bugs from the moon, you know. You could have taken the astronauts, you put them there, you really kept them there for a while to make sure that there is, a, you know, you do spectroscopy every five seconds of the environment in which they've been confined, and you, reali and you realize that there is nothing but... Uh, but what uh, there should be. So the only responsible approach is to verify that there is absolutely no risk, and I think that that's the approach we chose to, to adopt. Uh, I must say there have been many unexpected consequences of fundamental research, electricity, quantum mechanics uh, that led to chemistry and everything else, accelerator physics. I was glad to discover a couple of days ago from my friend Ken Peach that he's been appointed director of one of the new institutes here at the 21st Century School of the Particle Therapy Cancer Research Institute, and that's entirely driven by, by the accelerator physics we, we do, the web, of course, and more. We've been seeing in the past few months really a 21st century witch hunt. This I can testify. The attack of fundamental research that's been brought at all levels. Uh, I've never seen anything anything like that, and I must say that in this sense we, we are responsi responsible for that because we created the web. And the web has an immense catastrophic power because it empowers everyone, you know, to proclaim himself uh, uh, a wise person and to immediately affect and influence the thinking of huge amounts of people. I mean, you know, if Hitler had the, the web, uh, you know, it would have taken him even less perhaps to to get to where he got. We certainly have a lot of responsibility here in this uh, respect. Uh, we, we are not really doing our good job in uh, educating the public. We are not telling them the right things. You know, the public, you know, we go out and we tell them about the Higgs supersymmetry, black holes, extra dimensions. The average person on the street doesn't know Newton's law. He doesn't know thermodynamics. So why do we worry about, uh, you know, uh, supergravity when uh, they, they cannot really use the, the basic rules of, of coordinated thinking, you know, like the syllogism uh, on applying probabilities. And uh, so I think that we should be more concentrating on very, very basic aspects of education of the public before we worry about explaining that the black hole is safe 
or, or not. You know, we write papers like with titles like Dangerous Implications of a Minimum Length in Quantum Gravity. This dangerous means nothing in the context of what you, you guys uh, are doing. It simply means that, you know, that specific theory is put in danger because if you have that thing, then you rule it out immediately based on evidence. So it's dangerous for the physicist because he will lose credibility and will not get the Nobel Prize, but it's not dangerous for humanity. So we have to change uh, the language. The media, of course, plays a big role in this. And I think that, you know, because of all of these interconnections, the media, etc., you also have to be very, very careful of the implications of, you know, how you communicate uh, to people and what's the impression that, uh, that you give. And this is my last uh, slide. Now, we have a lot of challenges for the future. And the question is, what, where is the knowledge going to come from that will enable us to face these challenges? Of course, everybody relies on technology, which, however, only manipulates the nature. And the fundamental research does something different. It exposes nature's behavior and then enables, perhaps, its further manipulation in a positive way, introducing absolutely new. So one of the things I have in my mind is, you know, we can keep doing work now there is the institute here so that will guarantee survival of humanity for the next four and a half billion years but a time will come when five billion years from now the sun goes off and that's a problem so you know we probably have to get out of this place if we want to go so if you really look forward that's one the first thing to worry about you know before we worry about uh, the cooling down of the universe that we'll hear about tomorrow how do we get out of this place by manipulating technology, by getting better rockets, or by, you know, discovering new physical laws that perhaps will make it uh, smoothless and much easier and cheaper to actually, all of us, go somewhere else where we'll be safe for the next uh, 500 billions of years. So monitoring the safety and the impact of fundamental research is certainly a mandatory duty of a scientist. I spent the last year of my life doing this night and day, weekends and everything, just even though it was not part of my of my experience, of my job, of my background. But let's uh, do it together. Let us cooperate responsibly to prevent that national fears and panic jeopardize the future of fundamental research, which I believe would be by itself a major global catastrophe. Sorry for running long. Thank you very much. And uh, now I hope that there will be some edible served out there in the reception area. And I encourage you all to talk more to the speakers uh, during the breaks and uh, lunchtime. Uh, I did not run long on purpose to avoid questions. <laughs> I'd be happy to answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>